All right, y'all. We are live. Good evening. Good evening. Let's see here. All right, yep. We're get. We are fully set. What's going on, y'all? Doctor Barry Pierre, your board certified internist. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for everyone uh, who is joining. Thank you for everyone who will catch the replay live on the YouTube channel. Which, if you don't already follow me, you should definitely be following the YouTube channel. Uh, this is our weekly live episode. Uh, I call it the Real Physician Reacts, Doctor Reacts. This week, we don't necessarily, this week is not even really topic driven this week. So this week titled, Ask the Internist, right? So just, we're gonna just be asking questions. May not notice it, but I am in the comfort of the physician uh, room. I'm on nights this week, which means that I'm taking care of any emergency. So if y'all see that I abruptly end this live, then like something's going down, right? So that's gonna be the likely scenario here. Um, again, make sure hit the likes, hit the follows, uh, tap the hearts, tap the hearts, share it out. Uh, Cause we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about a wide range of topics. So again, we're not gonna be all focused on one topic versus the other. Um, for those who, uh, who catch the replay later, it will be posted on our YouTube channel tomorrow morning. So link in the bio, or I think one of the links goes directly to my YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well, just in case they kick us off TikTok uh, one way or the other. All right, so we got, we got, we're gonna have some questions. Uh, oh, okay, let's talk about, all right, so we already got our first question. We're gonna be talking about rheumatoid arthritis. Again, for those who may not know, I am a board certified internist. That means I specialize in the internal organs. That's kind of the way when, you know, one of my patients try to figure out like, hey, what does it mean to be an internist, that means I specialize in the internal organs. Now, I don't specialize in a particular internal organs. I'm very general with it, right? So I know a little bit about a lot of systems. Sorry about that, which which will typically, this again, this is what happens when you're on nights, you get calls about the most random things that you get called for. So uh, we have a person uh, first mentioned, talked about rheumatoid arthritis. So this is actually a very, uh, important topic, especially from the outpatient perspective. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis is what I would like to say this disease of the body turning on itself. So it's a autoimmune process where the body will actually attack itself. And where does it typically attack itself? In the joints. So a lot of, and this is typically kind of diagnosed usually in our early decades, teens, but usually 20s or 30s, because that's when we start noticing we having just kind of general aches and pain, especially within our hands, within our feet. But it's not only precluded to just the joints because you can have certain organs, especially the kidneys, get affected as well. And the initial, initial kind of treatment course typically is anti-inflammatories in one way or the other. But the way I kind of mentioned it, the fact that it's the body turning on itself, what typically occurs is that we typically have to give patients what we call uh, monoclonal antibodies, which are essentially saying, hey, we want your body to stop attacking itself. And that could be good for a couple of reasons, right? Because obviously your body stops doing it, but then it makes it more difficult to fight regular infections, right? So, and it's a chronic disease. It is a disease that can be well managed, can be well controlled, but it is a chronic disease of an issue uh, that typically occurs. So uh, let, let's see what we're, uh, yes, I'm 44, have, yeah, so RA and OA. And, and those two kind of go hand in hand. When we talk about an RA rheumatoid arthritis, OA is the osteoarthritis. 
typically when we're talking about those two separate factors there, um, the RA is, hey, the body attacking itself is usually uh, an autoimmune related issue, whereas osteoarthritis is usually what we hear more of, of the wear and tear. This typically happens to athletes, just, eh, kids as well, but usually athletes, um, those who are just dealing with a lot of stress on the joints and they're treated differently. Like your, osteo your osteoarthritis, um, again, anti-inflammatories, rest, um, some pain control, your RA is typically where you need to give yourself medications to try uh, to protect itself um, uh, from itself. Uh, what do you think about metformin for, uh, yeah, athlete, yeah, yeah, typically the athletes and that, that, especially that combination uh, as well. Um, metformin for RA. So I don't know of any, I'd have to look to see if there's any absolute studies that have some correlation where you may see some benefits of metformin with, uh, uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis. We could take a quick little look here just to see if anything pops up on, on PubMed. So I, so I see there's some clinical trials, this kind of data out of 2019, where it says that because of metformin antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, um, it could be a good candidate for RA, right? So again, what they're using the metformin for is saying, hey, we know that metformin could have good antioxidant, good anti-inflammatory qualities. Would this be beneficial? Now, of course, if you're a rheumatologist, if you're a rheumatologist your first line therapy isn't likely going to be, hey, let me put them on metformin, but metformin is a relatively safe medication, so it's not out of the ordinary uh, from that standpoint there. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, sorry, uh, methotrexate. Yeah, yeah, methotrexate, most definitely. So, met yeah, see, methotrexate makes way more sense too, uh, because again, that is one of those medications that, again, stops the body from protecting itself. Uh, hey, Millie, no, we are we're actually just starting. Um, we're doing, we're not even doing a very focused um, discussion topic today of the, uh, our Thursday night thing. We're doing more of a kind of a general discussion. And our first topic was uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and, and you may see, because like I said, I am on nights. Uh, so if you see me have to run out of here real quick, um, I will definitely hop right back on uh, live to get, a get the talking going. Hey, from Atlanta. Um, I need to keep moving to eat well. Yeah, most, most definitely. And again, the problem with, and again, I don't want to say the problem. Let me, let me make sure I clear myself. The, the issue with the treatment options for a, a disease process that attacks itself is that it's going to invariably leave you at a more compromised position to fight other things. So we have a lot of patients, especially when they come in a hospital setting and they're on like methotrexate, down here, they're on these, all these other monoclonal antibodies. We know that because they're on these medications, one, we have to stop those medications while we're treating them. And two, we know that because they're on those medications, they're at a higher risk for a disease process, right? Like we just know that um, in, in that sense. So it is one of those things where when you're talking with the rheumatologist, uh, you have to, or you're talking, usually the rheumatologist is the one who's taking care of it. Uh, you have to let them know kind of, I'm here for uh, any buzz overhead. Uh, you do have to, uh, you know, try to see any of the pros and cons. And your rheumatologist will do a great job saying, hey, I have to put you on this medication. Yes, I know that 
you know, it, you know, you have a chance to, you know, succumb to other illnesses. And yes, I know that you have to be, because typically those patients who are on monoclonal antibodies, we make sure they're vaccinated if they can be vaccinated, because we know that the risk of getting those types of infections uh, kind of increase through the roof. So it's definitely something uh, to be concerned about for sure. Hello, everybody. All right. So uh, while, while I got some free, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So and that, and that's the thing is because because those types of medications, humiramatrexate, those types of medications, it it doesn't know to only attack uh, the body at the joints or only attack. It says, hey, you know what? The body is trying to attack itself. So I am going to. I'm going to just like, hey, I'm going to depress this and I'm going to knock everything out. And you're likely going to feel bad uh, in the first place. And, you know, obviously we're not infectious disease, but it's one of the reasons why when you're dealing with a fungal infection, it's so bad. Because the way, yeah, it's a blanket. Uh, just got this like a blanket approach to kind of stop everything now. The way you have to deal with fungal infections is because your body doesn't necessarily say, hey, all right. I'm only going to attack the fungus, but not attack everything else. You usually have to give very, especially if it's systemic uh, type infection, you have to give an infection that can really knock everything out. So it's kind of that shotgun approach to try to treat uh, the problem. But it is something, uh, you know, to, to be wary of for sure. Okay, so I got, got a quick little second. So uh, we can we can definitely plug in because I always like to, you know, every time I get a chance uh, to kind of give us some uh, updates on uh, COVID, right? So if, if you, for those who don't know me, um, I like talking about COVID, I like talking about COVID vaccines and everything else. Uh, so what we've uh, found out this week, uh, FDA has given approval for a second booster for those who are uh, immunocompromised or 65 and above. They are able to get a second booster of the uh, covalent um, booster for COVID-19. Now, again, we are in the scenario where, yes, total, uh, the numbers are down, right? Which I've had discussions on this before. Take that information as you may. Numbers are down. Are we reporting less? Whatever, right? Um, so we do see the numbers down. We, see, we do see the decline. But again, this, and, and I've talked about this on prior lives, this is actually the time window typically towards the end of cold and flu season that we that we've seen the numbers of our covid cases and just kind of kind of dip and dip low um now what the concern is that there's already a variant uh that's outside the country now i think it's called it's i think it's xb let me hold on let me let me not let me not say the wrong uh synonym because i want to make sure we got the right it is xbb.1.16 also known as arcturus um, that is a uh, it's yeah it's a COVID variant um, out that we're seeing that could be of concern um, from yes exactly one point one six could be of concern we know that uh, that it could be a little bit more highly more transmissible than the other uh, previous COVID variants um, one thing that people are starting to notice that it can cause uh, all these other symptoms right and for those especially if, you know as long as we've been around right the COVID and just the, the disease itself, kind of the waves that it's gone through has kind of been in relation to kind of the symptoms. So we know the, the OG COVID, when it was first kind of around, the biggest issues it had was that it caused you know, loss of taste, right? Loss of smell. Everything tasted funny. That was a big one for us. 
Um, we know that as it progressed and as variants progressed, we, there is GI complaints uh, that occurred, right? Like I'm, you know, I'm having diarrhea, I'm having stomach issues, and that was the predominant kind of initial signs and symptoms. Uh, this one, there's mentioning that we need to actually look out for patients developing conjunctivitis or red eyes or um, you know watery eyes, right? So again, these these types of things here, especially when we're dealing with COVID, especially when we're dealing with COVID variants. Um, not only do we have to be aware of the variants, especially from a healthcare professional standpoint, but we also be, have to be aware of how they present. So now if I have a patient in the facility, because I work at several different facilities, I have a patient in several different facilities, they may not give me the typical, oh, I'm short of breath or I can't taste anything, but like, hey, you know what, my eyes are hurting, I'm, I'm getting swelling. They may have just very what we call atypical symptoms but we have to have it in the back of my mind, like, hey, I need to be weary uh, about this COVID, right? So it's definitely something to, you know, you know, just to kind of keep in mind, though. Uh, we're, we're having a great discussion on, uh, you know, the RA. Uh, yes, uh, about 7.2% uh, of cases now. And we expect it to go up, right? Probably with, like, you know, with, with today, today's, what, the 20th. In about three to four weeks, that number is going to go up because they all do. Now, of course, like when these numbers go up, when these variants come around, obviously our concern is not only do the numbers go up, but what do they? What happens when they go up? Is there more hospitalizations? Is there is there more deaths? Like what occurs uh, when these typical variants go up? And again, we're 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 thankfully running into a scenario where we have more people being vaccinated, more not necessarily boosted, but definitely being vaccinated. So we're having some lines of protection. Obviously, you know, if you just open your eyes, you can see, you know, masking isn't as prevalent as it was before, right? But we're hoping that, you know, the people who aren't masking, a lot of them um, are, are boosted. Uh, a lot of them are protecting themselves, protecting others from the spread, right? Like that's, that's all we can kind of hope for. And even in the hospital setting, like we actually just got an email today. We just got an email today that says, hey, you know what? Masks are optional in the hospital setting. Now, let me tell y'all. I'm walking into the hospital setting with a mask every single time, but that's just me. That's just me. I'm walking in the hospital with a mask every single time, despite whether you want to make me wear that mask. I thank you. Thankfully, the mask will be readily available. And of course, if a patient has COVID or their family members um, go to visit them because they have COVID, they're still going to make them wear a mask. So that's, you know, not, you know, not, you know, that's, you know, something. Right, but I'm 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 the ilk of hey, you know what? I want to protect myself as much as possible, especially in these situations that I can. Like I, if I go to the grocery store, like I may run and run out, and not wear a mask. But if I'm going to a place that I know it's a petri dish of disease, I'm going to protect myself as much as possible. Like it just, it just is what it is. But it was so funny, like literally today, and that that's what happens, right? For those who may know, um, you know the COVID uh, rules that the federal government put out there are ending in a few weeks like i think may may 10th i think someone someone put in the chat if you know what date this they're ending so the covid um you know protections from a federal government standpoint they're ending so you know covid things as far as the hospital setting covid things as far as insurance covid things as far as all of these like covid related pandemic um rules that they were placed are going away because and I, I have, I have, I have. In fact, I definitely have a, a YouTube video on it. But you know, financing and everything else, so all of those things are going away. So, this stuff has to kind of go. 
So so we're we're gonna have to again continue to deal with what I I call the new norm, right? Like a lot of people, you know, keep asking like, hey, when is COVID ending? Is COVID COVID's never ending? COVID's never going away. So now it's like, how are you going to be able to maneuver in a world that COVID is still here? How are you going to be able to maneuver uh, in a world that you're going to have these ebbs and flows of COVID flare-ups, right? Just like we have COVID flu season, like no one goes, no one like goes crazy when we have flu season. But like if I say, hey, it's COVID season, you know, right, you, we should be just as prepared. So definitely, definitely uh, a, a school of thought for sure. Yes, everyone. Yeah, a lot of people were like, "I'm still wearing mines." <laughs> uh, oh, you know, it's actually a very good question. So, someone asked, oh, "Will you also treat the pink eye as well?" Yeah. So, um, for what we're seeing, because typically, typically, pink eye for those of you who know, uh, or conjunctivitis, right? For a lot of people who know, is typically viral mediated. Anyways, uh, the majority of the time, if you have pink eye, it's likely due to a virus. And obviously, I'm excluding, you know, the those who have allergies and everything else. But typically, from an infection standpoint, virus is usually the main cause. So we may have to treat it symptomatically. Like we may obviously make sure your eyes are moisturized. Um, if you know, if if it gets real bad, we can give you some steroids. So we got some treatment options just for the conjunctivitis. Uh, but I think it's going to be very interesting, and I think it's going to be just a mindset shift that's going to have to occur for those who are like, oh, you just have pink eye and not even think about like, oh, this might be COVID. Like, because it's for for a lot of people, when people hear COVID, they think all oh, respiratory. They think, oh, it's just the breathing. But if the only symptoms they're saying is, hey, I can't taste, like I'm, I'm having this funny taste, boom, I got to think of COVID. If, especially during a time with the Delta variant, GI issues were the biggest complaint. So a lot of diarrhea, a lot of upset stomach. So you had to think about that in that sense as well. So definitely, a, you know, now, especially, and obviously we'll see in the next few weeks, especially when this variant goes from 7% to, you know, 30%, 40%, we have to start thinking like, all right, we got a lot more people running around here with conjunctivitis is, do I need to be careful and not think about um, you know, and, and think about COVID. So definitely something we need to uh, be, re be weary of uh, for sure. Oh, this is a good question. Um, Brittany asked, I had COVID a month ago. How long until my immunity goes away? Uh, do you think so? That that question varies depending on when you would have asked me on it. So if you would have asked me in the in the, the first kind of wave of COVID dealing with the first you know, kind of iteration of COVID, uh, we know that those who got infected, those who got infected from COVID saw about a good three to six months of kind of a protection or cocoon where they still had antibodies against COVID. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't get COVID again, but it, your antibodies were there. As subsequent, and again, this is the issue with variants. As subsequent variants occurred, that time frame just continued to move lower and lower and lower. And it got to the point where um, sometimes within a month to two months, your antibodies were essentially as if nothing happened, which is why even for those patients who had gotten infected with COVID and maybe they never got the vaccine, we were saying, hey, you should wait a month and go ahead and get vaccinated or go ahead and get boosted. And so it was, and that was really just a big issue um, with these variants because the way, and 
every time a new variant comes out, you know, the scientists and, you know, those much smarter than me have to kind of figure out like, okay, how is this one going to affect all of the stuff that we knew about COVID before? So if you would ask me about the OG COVID, I would say, yeah, you could probably rock out for about six months. Probably rock out for about six months. Now, again, I still, I would, even at that time, I used to still tell people, you should still get vaccinated. You should still get vaccinated, but you do have six months of what we see antibody-related protection, like your antibody levels are high. But with subsequent variants, with Delta, with the Omicron, BA5, it just kept, that time frame just kept moving, moving, moving to the point where just because you got naturally infected, right? And fortunately, um, you, you made it to the other side with no issues. Just because you got naturally infected didn't mean that like you, you were protected for a year that just wasn't the case anymore and it, and that's when it really got to the point where before it was like all right naturally affected um versus um you know um, vaccine related protection oh maybe 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 and then as these subsequent variants occurred that number just and it just made way too much sense uh to get the vaccine especially if you were looking for long-term protection now again long-term protection is very relative right so you're going to still have people um, who will tell you like, oh, what's the point of getting the COVID vaccine if I got to get boosted, uh, you know, every six months or every year? Now, again, I don't think it'll be to the point where you'll have to get boosted every six months because I don't think that the variants will, well, I'm hoping, right? <laughs> and I thought, what? I don't think that will have such significant variants that that will be the case. Uh, but every year, I think is right in the wheelhouse right in the wheelhouse. And for those who are on this slide right now, um, one of those benefits of having the federal government with those COVID protections that are ending next month is that, you know, you could go to, you know, these pharmacies and get free testing. You can go to these pharmacies and get uh, free treatment. That's not going to happen. So you're going to, we're going to try to walk over to Walgreens in a couple of months and they're going to be like the COVID test costs this. You're going to try to walk into Walgreens to get one of those over-the-counter treatment. And they're be like, this treatment costs this. So, you know, especially if you have the opportunity to be able to, you know, grab a couple home COVID tests, do that ASAP. Um, I think they're still giving it away. Uh, so if you have the opportunity, do that ASAP. Because uh, once that once that government protection goes away, a.k.a. once the government checkbook goes away, the, it's going to be on your own. And then it's really going to be the haves, a.k.a. those who are uh, properly insured. And I say properly because you can be insured and still not afford that stuff versus those who aren't insured at all. Like it's going to be it's going to be a tale of two worlds. So if you have not gotten vaccinated yet, get it while it's free. If you have not gotten boosted yet and you can get it while it's free, because once CVS and Walgreens and Walmart start saying, hey, this is the bill to get vaccinated. Some people are going to be looking wild. Some people. I'm not saying everybody, but some people are going to be looking wild. Yes, uh, I thank you, Melissa. It is May 11th. So I, cause I, can't, I couldn't remember what date it was. So May 11th, that's the day. That is the day that you better be running. You better be running. And before that day, Get vaccinated uh, if you can. Uh, try to get some home tests sent to your house if you can. Uh, because once that day passes and the federal government is not going to send, you know, the Walgreens of the world a check. I, get, I don't know how that worked. But once that goes away, uh, people are going to be looking very wild. I'm just, I'm just telling you. 
Like, uh, you know, don't believe me. He goes, like I said, don't believe me. See, like him. Like, just think about it now. Right? For those who, let's say if you wanted to get a flu shot. Think about how much, it, like, especially if you're not going to a place that's offering free, free flu shots. Think about how much it costs to get a flu shot. Something that we kind of take for granted because the flu shot's been around for so long. Uh, so, so it, and if the flu shot medication has been around for as long as it did, and it's still costing people the money it's costing, imagine what a COVID vaccine that just came out two and a half years ago was going to cost people. Again, uh, I'm not trying to be hyperbolistic. I'm just trying to kind of educate our community um, and try to, you know, save them some money. Let's see here. Uh, does this pink eye mean it's being caught through the eyes? No, uh, pink eye. That's actually a very cool question. Um, so the question was, uh, does pink eye mean it's caught through the eyes? No, what happens is pink eye is essentially conjunctivitis. So essentially, the like the whites of our eyes, which mine's kind of look red too, but don't pay no mind. I'm all night, so maybe it's lack of sleep. Um, what happened is uh, the whites of the eyes get inflamed. And we just kind of term it as pink eye, but the medical term is conjunctivitis. But it's not necessarily caught through the eye. But like for those who have, you know, you know, typical conjunctivitis, because we know how it's spread, what most people do when your eyes are inflamed, you rub it. You rub it, and then you rub it in your hands. You don't wash your hands well. You go touch someone's face, and then boom. Like so, it it it, it is very contagious. Now. I'm not saying that the, at least what we don't know right now, I don't know if the, the conjunctivitis you can pick up from COVID is contagious like that. We just know that from typical viral conjunctivitis, that's the, the typical picture. Um, well, no, it's, it's not necessarily just pink eye. That's a great, great question, Brittany. Um, it's not just pink eye with this new variant, but it is one of those like, hmm, like these people are, a lot of these people are getting pink eye from it like because it's it's a new symptom that you didn't have to necessarily think about with uh the other strains like it 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 wasn't one of the first symptoms you thought about when you said oh this person has pink eye so that's kind of the the case there yep anyway for two years uh, throw throw away away your antibiotics if if you had them for that long please throw them away yeah, no, and, and I think this is this is probably a good point where we kind of mentioned um, by the time you were over one variant, the next one was moving and meaning little protection, which again, and this is this is why when I when I talk to those who are anti-vaccinated, uh, this is how you could tell they're very disingenuous, because if you explain to them like, hey, you know what, the COVID vaccine you got in the first time may not be as effective as the COVID vaccine you'll need in six months to a year, they'll tell you that, oh, see, it doesn't work. I told you that COVID vaccine doesn't work. That's why you should have never got it. Like, that's their mindset. But what they're not saying is the reason why it's not working is because we've had uh, subsequent variants that made it, you know, essentially not as effective as before. And part of the reason why we had subsequent variants was because people who were not vaccinated were spreading it up. They never say that part. They ne- that part never seems to come up, but it's this this ingenuous argument that oh the vaccines don't work. That's why, you know, the subsequent variants are um, you know stronger than it. Like it, it just never made any sense. But again, that's what we that's what we've had to deal with for the past couple of years. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, Texas, 
Texas, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, good point. It says, um, that they got Haley, are they, are they seeing pink eye and new COVID? Yeah, so the new variants, now again, this is a new variant outside the country over here. It's not even a deep dominant variant yet. It's only about 7% of cases. Um, but if you, you know, just listen to these words, in about four weeks, that number's probably gonna triple easily. Yeah, it'll easily triple. Uh, yeah, it just, because that's just how variants do. Like for those, especially if you've been around these variant flows, like that's just typically how it does. We start looking at something and it was like, ooh, in about a month, that's gonna turn up. And it typically goes. And remember, we are in the part of, especially if you go to look back at the ebbs and flows of COVID um, and COVID cases, we are in the low, we are in the down slope. And, you know, once we get to the summer, it kind of it kind of creeps back up again. So definitely something that, uh, you know, keep keep an eye of. Uh, for sure. Uh, oh, it's a good question. So someone asked uh, advice uh, for soon to be I am attending. Yes, you know, I love it. I love to hear this. Right. So again, as an internist, one of the things that um, I, I had to learn, right, is that you are the captain of the ship. Right. But more importantly, because you know so many things and sometimes uh, you can get you, you can get beside yourself. Right. Because you, you know a lot and understanding that this is a very team centered. Uh, this is a team effort. Right. When it comes to just healthcare and healthcare in general. Uh, but you'll be surprised how many people defer to the internists. Right. Because, again, we're, we're typically at the kind of the top of the food chain, especially when it comes to kind of medical care. We're usually the primary care physicians in the hospital or primary care physicians outside of the hospital. Um, surgeons uh, usually need our medical expertise when dealing with their patients. So um, you are very heavily relied on. So understand just being confident with your training, uh, being confident with um, you know, the fact that, yes, you know what you're talking about, because uh, that's probably the biggest test, especially if you're like a PGY3 about to go on to be an attending. That's usually like the biggest hurdle because there's this kind of this confidence that like, oh, am I ready for it? And I can assure you, I can assure you that you are, uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of attendings out here, right, who huh, we, in fact, we won't despair. We won't disparage our uh, fellow um, uh, colleagues uh, this life. We'll do it on a different life. Uh, we want, well, let's just say there are going to be a lot of colleagues out here who are going to wish they had your energy, wish they had your spunk, wish they had your like wealth of knowledge that is downloaded in your brain, especially at a time like this where being an internist, um, we're, we're so relied on so many different facets uh, that we just, we, I feel like sometimes we know too much. And some of our biggest, our best traits is that we we just like knowing stuff. We're like we like reading, like we like being investigative reporters uh, per se. It's like it's a crazy treat of ours. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, you know, and this is, this is a question, right? So why are hospitals not wearing uh, masks, COVID units, and masks? Like, so what, what what hospitals have always relied on is and we, we kind of knew this was going to occur like this aspect of like hey i'm just going to follow what the cdc tells me and i'm going to base it off the cdc numbers like that's kind of that's always been their crutch so when the cdc was saying hey lock everything down shut it down mass n95s they're like yeah see this is why we're doing it because cdc tells us to do it and we knew right especially in our field that once the cdc started with withdrawing and saying like all right we're going to be kind of relaxing a lot of our stipulations. That was only a matter of time that it would get to uh, the hospitals. and then the, So now the hospitals had a way to follow up and say, hey, no, no, see, 
based off the CDC, this is why you don't have to wear no mask anymore. Or based off the CDC, this is why you don't have to do this, the, the things you have to do anymore. So, and, you know, and these hospitals, especially in that early pandemic, when they were overran, you know, they, they were just looking for guidance from anywhere. And the CDC was their, you know, kind of pinnacle. And then, you know, as, you know, as, you know, vaccinations and as all these things started occurring, um, as far as the numbers, you know, not being as reported as much, you just start seeing uh, more and more people being lax. Um, do you think the pan vaccine could be available uh, next year? Yes, I believe so, because I know Duke uh, University is working on that. For those who may not be familiar with the pan vaccine, it's going to be a vaccine that is going to be against the SARS coronavirus family. So it's not necessarily going to be against one uh, you know, specific variant. Because like right now, like the COVID booster um, is it does well against, I think, uh, Omicron, BA5. And like, so it has like a specific, like, hey, I'm targeting this right here. What they're saying is like, hey, we need to make a vaccine that kind of just targets a lot of them, not anything one specific, because coronavirus is replicating, causing all these new variants. So that, like, that was kind of the mindset. So um, you'll see now, of course, uh, a couple of factors as far as time is we know that, you know, to come out with a new vaccine, you still got to go through all the steps, right? You still got to go through all of the preliminary stuff as far as clinical trials. Uh, then you got to go to actual, um, you know, animal studies. Then you got to go through actual uh, clinical trials, which means you're going to need people who are going to volunteer uh, for, say, trials. And, and it's weird. It's weird because let me tell you why. Because when COVID first hit, you had this disease that nobody knew nothing about that affected a lot of people. So you had a lot of people, and then there was money there, right? Governments and everything else. So you had a lot of people who are very eager, right, to join these trials or to even perform these trials because the money was there. Fast forward now where you don't necessarily have the, the whole world trying to fund you know, the, the, the outreach of a pan vaccine, because that's just not the case, because they're like, hey, you know, we got the vaccines here. You know, Moderna's doing their thing. Pfizer's doing their thing. Novartis is doing their thing. You know, and, you know, outside the world, they're doing their thing. So you don't necessarily have that group effort providing dollars, providing like, hey, like, you know, we'll give you all this money. Um, we will, again, some part of the COVID rules was that they allowed a lot of the red tape to be sped up. Now, they didn't skip any step, and I, and I hated that they called it Operation Warp Speed. It was a terrible name. Terrible name. All it did was erase a lot of the red tape that typically slows down the production of these medications or vaccines. So they eliminated a lot of the red tape. So, But, of course, now that, again, May 11th, a lot of these things are kind of coming back, um, it may slow the progress down. So I would, I would hope for next year. Um, but, again, I, I think some of that red tape, I think finding enough subjects may be an issue uh, of concern uh, but it is a good possibility right to have a vaccine that kind of again especially when we talk about yearly vaccines and again you wouldn't necessarily be getting a yearly vaccine that's specific to a variant but you're getting let's say the yearly SARS corona pan vaccine that kind of protects me against the coronavirus in general uh, but very very good question but very good question, Blue Poodle. 
Um, my mask saved me from TV exposure. I'm never taking it off. Oh yeah, I mean, see, you know, you know what I like about, you know, the reason why this question is a good one is because I think a lot of people equate the mask wearing to just COVID. Now, if you would have, you know, rewind and been 2019, there were a lot of people wearing masks, but the reason why they were wearing masks because the flu season was out. So we used to wear masks all the time, right, for flu season, or it made it worse, like, especially if you were in a hospital setting, if you were a healthcare worker who didn't get the flu vaccine for whatever reason you get the flu vaccine, you were required to wear that mask all flu season. Like, hey, you don't get your flu vaccine because, you know, they, they have like a, like, oh, in fact, mine's still here. So you probably can't see it, but like, I have like this yellow sticker here. That that lets people know. Um, I think this is the this is either COVID or flu, but that you would get something like this to say, "Hey, this person got vaccinated from flu, so I could walk around with no mask because the hospital knows that I got a flu vaccine." Um, so before in 2019, if you didn't do that, you had to wear a mask. So wearing mask is there. And then again, I'm in South Florida. I take care of patients, um, you know, with TB. Right, like take care of quite not a lot, but I taking care of patients with TV. And guess what masks we used to wear? N ninety fives. Right? And no one, no one will sit here and be like, Oh, good I don't I don't care if you have T B, you're allowed to, you know, go out to the clubs, you're allowed to go out everywhere with act like no one will tell you that. They're lying if they will, right? But again, because it's COVID, they're like, ah, I don't care if they got COVID. They, they can walk around. They, like, personal freedom. Like, they tell you that type of BS, right? It just, you know, it's just the the, the comedy that we had to deal with that. Um, oh, uh, someone said, so, uh, I'm vaccinated. Oh, yes, 100%. I am, uh, I'm on record. I am Moderna Mafia. Moderna Mafia. Like, the the second week when, when COVID vaccines first came out for healthcare professionals, boom. Like, what's worse, I was on vacation the week it came out. I was so mad because I was on vacation. So I, I had to wait a whole week to get it. So, and, and I've been Moderna Mafia, Moderna Mafia, because two doses. Um, booster, Moderna, uh, second booster, Moderna. So uh, we are uh, Moderna Mafia over here. <laughs> oh, this is a good question, right? So this, you know, so someone's saying, who is paying you, right? Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, because I get this question a lot. Um, unfortunately, no one is paying me. Right, Pfizer isn't paying me. Moderna isn't paying me. Novartis isn't paying me. AstraZeneca, no one is paying me. Now, what I implore those who ask, like, what I'm getting paid to promote vaccinations and everything else, is please tell me how we can get paid. Because I got a lot of my healthcare professionals who go on YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, Clubhouse, and we've been we've been promoting getting vaccinated for this whole time and none of us seem to know how to get paid. So clearly it'd be something that y'all know. Like, and if y'all know, if y'all can, you know, DM DM me please so I can figure out how I can get Moderna. Cause yeah, I'm Moderna Mafia, shout out. Hey, if someone from Moderna is watching, I would love to be your spokesperson. Whatever that entails to tell people to get vaccinated, I'm, I do it for free anyways, uh, I would love to do it. <laughs> Let's see here. Hmm. Yeah, so, and this, and this is important too, right? So someone said, I'm vaxxed, I'm boosted, just got diagnosed with COVID yesterday, right? So this is, and this is the issue, and this is what happens when you're dealing with kind of subsequent variants after variants, that you can get vaxxed, you can get boosted, right? And still have that wiggle room of, hey, you know what? I may get COVID, but remember the goal, the goal of 
the COVID vaccine in general, and it, we've we've talked about this kind of you know in the past, but we haven't. We well, might as well say it now. Um, remember, the two goals of the COVID is to reduce disease severity and make sure you don't pass away from COVID. That's the two goals from Pfizer, Moderna, from the beginning. Like, hey, and I, I, I always forget about the OG Johnson and Johnson. Sorry about uh, those who are Johnson and Johnson folks. Um, so Johnson and Johnson is another one. So it's always been about decreasing the disease severity and uh, reducing mortality rate. Like that's always been the goal of the COVID vaccine. Not necessarily to protect you from ever getting COVID. Now I know they, I know that was the messaging in the in the past, which was again just bad, which is terrible. It's just because it didn't make no sense. Um, especially when the people who made the vaccine never said that. Um, it said, hey, yeah, you know what? You decrease your chance of possibly getting it, but we're not saying 100%, and they could never say that because it'd be crazy. Um, so I'm, I'm just hoping that you're gonna do well, um, you know, you know, stay you know, stay quarantined. I think it's what, five days now? Uh, again, new CDC rules. Uh, five days now, if you're AFEB raw, I think it goes up to 10 if you're still symptomatic um, uh, to that point. Uh, so stay safe and uh, keep your family safe as well too. <laughs> yeah, shout out, shout out to Millie. <laughs> I love the card out there now, folks. Uh, globally caring and investing. Yeah, no, that's so true. <laughs> oh, oh, this is oh, this is a little good question here. So, thoughts on NPs in healthcare? So, I think uh, the nurse practitioners, the physician assistants, um, are vital, vital in healthcare. Now, do I think? that they've gotten a bad rep from bad apples. Yeah, like I, I think that's been the case. Uh, when you look at historically what their their goal and their kind of foundation of was really to can, to help and support physicians and taking care of the community. And what, what's been happening, especially probably over the past maybe decade or so, is that that's kind of switched where it's not been necessarily in support of, but like, hey, I wanna, I want to just help the community. I'm, I want to stand over here. Uh, so you have, and you have different, in the different states, different varies of, you know, uh, autonomy, like what can a nurse practitioner do? We know nurse practitioners, we know physician assistants, um, you know, one of the, uh, the, I guess the benefits, right, of them is that they can go from kind of specialty to specialty, right? So they can, you know, they can work for a cardiologist for two years, say, I don't want to do cardiology anymore. I'm working gastroenterology. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm work for, so they have the ability, again, that's when you think about, their origin that was always their purpose to be able to kind of hey plug in and kind of help um so what happens is you have you know the bad apples right the bad apples who will uh, make it seem like oh my god like like going nurse practitioner is the only way to go um don't trust the doctor don't like when you start having like infighting right that's why i call it when you start having that infighting uh, against team members like i think that's when it went downhill and you just had more and more infighting uh, occur, especially with the nurse practitioners and when they're trying to get their autonomy. And, you know, you, you have people say like, oh, I would never go see a doctor. Like there's people who were like, I would never go see a doctor. And there are people who were like, I would never see a nurse practitioner. And that just doesn't make any sense. One, because the numbers don't favor that. The numbers do not favor a world where you can only see one and not have to deal with the other. Like it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. So it's, it's just the infighting that I think, unfortunately, has kind of soured uh, the relationship for, for some. Right. Not all. For some. Uh, but I, I think they're extremely vital. I have like three nurse practitioners who work under me. 
right? So I have, I'm at a long-term care center. I am at uh, two rehabs. I'm at two long-term centers, two rehabs, and I do um, acute care medicine. And I have nurse practitioners or PAs uh, in every different faction, right? It's, 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 the, it's the way of the world. Like we're, we're a team member here, um, but you know, again, the bad apples are unfortunately the bad apples. Let's see. Let's see here. Make sure I don't miss anybody's question. That's but that's a very good question. Though. Shout out to shout out to my MPs. Let's see. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I, trust me. I, I wish the CDC had like a list of um who was paying who. Um, any thoughts on the nasal vaccine? I'm not familiar with the nasal vaccine. Um, is it going to be nasal for COVID? Because um, you, you had some people who, because um, I know that was worked on in the beginning. I know that was a discussion in the beginning of trying to find a nasal vaccine, just kind of how like they have the nasal flu vaccine um, um, from that presentation there. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, so uh, Kelly says, I've always had to had the master of flu season at my job pre-2018 yeah so a lot of people of course obviously covid is covid right covid has you know for for a lot of people covid will be a turning point in their life like they're going to be like pre-covid i used to do this post-covid i used to do that like that's going to happen for uh pretty much everyone who remembers and was adult or just kind of functioning um unless you get unless you're like a little kid you don't even remember but like even my kids um every day of the that's like my, my my little daughter um she asked me like is covid gone yet is covid gone yet and i gotta explain to her no honey covid's not here but because she remembers uh when she had to get boosted when she has to get vaccinated uh when there was no school she remembers uh all that so covid's definitely going to be one of those kind of benchmarks in kind of everyone's life um Let's see. Really good comments. Oh yes, yes. Oh, so this. Oh, this is a great question. This is a great question here. Let me let me make sure I highlight that key creatine. Do you feel like your MPH complements your osteopathic training? Oh, one hundred percent, one thousand percent, one thousand percent. One of the things that I love about my MPH is that it it forced me to not think about the individual person. When you are kind of a medical professional, it's very easy, right? Like I'm taking care of Joe Blow in front of me. Let me just focus on Joe Blow in front of me. But the public health uh, mindset is like, all right, you can't just focus on this one person. You got to focus on the community behind that one person. Like it, we used to joke about this on our in our public health classes that in medicine, a successful trial in medicine is if it reduced mortality rate by like 10, 15%. Like if you had a medication, you know, beta blockers, like that reduced mortality rate by 10, 20%, that was like a successful uh, study and an amazing medication. And public health, our um, treat modalities is, hey, I get people to wash their hands and I wipe out smallpox. Like that, like that's the the scale that pub that public health puts on it. Um, so I I tell people all the time that my public health degree um, has made me such a better physician because it just won't allow me uh, to just focus on like, you know, the person in front of me. More importantly, when I'm doing, when I'm reading a lot of these journal articles, you know, Cleveland Clinic, everything else, um, you even read articles different. Um, as a public health professional, like because a lot of our classes, um, we our goal necessary wasn't to just read it. It was to say, all right, is this article trash? Like that was the question we had. Is this a trash article? And I had to read it and be like, okay, it's not trash. 
This is why it's not trash. Because a lot of these articles, these journal peer review articles be trash. So you go in that public health mindset like, okay, um, this ain't a trash article. I can rock with this. So it, it definitely flipped the squish. And then obviously being osteopathic uh, medicine, for those that know I'm a DO, um, which means that, you know, obviously I did my, what my allopaths do with all the medicine, basic sciences, everything else. Uh, but we also have a focus on how, um, you know, the skeletal system uh, can be manipulated and affected by diseases. Right. So if you have, let's say, a respiratory disease, um, I can look in your thoracic spine, uh, you know, T1 to T7 and know that, uh, like, oh, you know what? I'm feeling tissue sexual changes here. You may have some respiratory issues develop. Right. So it just gives you like a, just a different mindset, just a different way of processing and thinking, um, you know, for the process. But yeah, shout out to the public health degree. Shout out to uh, the osteopathic medical degree um, as well. Uh, let's see. Yeah, oh, oh this, this is crazy. So, a TB case, uh, shout out to the doctor, definitely, definitely a good follow um, if you don't already follow. Um, TB case was reported and the patient rejected treatment and mask. Now, what's crazy is that, guess what happens, right, with when you got TB, right, and you were like, I don't want treatment, I want this. Guess, guess who's coming to see you, right? The local, like, government is coming to see you, right? The CDC is coming to see you, right? Because, like, you are again again and it, and it sounds crazy especially in a time like this you are putting people at danger you are people people at danger they will come to your job they say oh this is where that person work at okay we'll go see them like hey you're supposed to get this vaccine treatment what are you waiting for if you're not waiting for it you need to be like like they do not play for tv people just walking around now, again we don't treat covid like that we don't treat covid like y'all like, a lot of y'all very lucky they don't um but like that's how they treat it because they recognize TB is disease. Again, this, this, listen to this rationale. They recognize TB is disease that even if I'm not, I'm just around you, you can give me TB, right? And if you can give me TB and then I can give someone else TB and I can give someone else TB, what does that sound like? Like what disease does that sound like that I don't even have to be interacting with you, but if I'm in the same room, I can pick up your disease and then pass it and pass it and pass it. That's COVID, right? But like, again, we don't treat, we don't treat COVID like we treat the TV folks. And uh, for a lot of people, that's uh, very lucky. <laughs> uh, I was concerned about the blood supply with vaccines. Oh, I'm not familiar with um, uh, that aspect there. Um, someone's asking, what about the, uh, what about all the cardiac deaths record numbers? So it's actually not, so this, I, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is in relation to the COVID vaccine, but it's actually not, um, you know, record numbers of, uh, cardiac related cases, cardiac related deaths. Um, you know, cardiac disease has been number one cause of death for as long as, as long as you can read back to see when we've started tracking this thing, cardiac diseases have been the number one cause of death. And more importantly, like even even if we wanted to kind of spurse out and say, all right, what are how many of these are COVID related? COVID disease causes an increased risk of cardiac death, not the vaccine, um, which again we've already proven like, ad nauseum. Um, so again, which kind of leads to our point, like you would want to try to prevent getting COVID, uh, then than dealing with the risk of all of the issues that can occur if you happen to get COVID. But uh, definitely no association with uh, COVID vaccine um, in, in that regards. Well, let's see. Yep, do no harm. Shout out, shout out to our oath. <laughs> I like this. Uh, Pfizer come pay me, finally call me interested to close. No, trust me, I, that's, I keep... 
I keep I keep asking, and every time you every time someone um, you know uh, accuses uh, you know one of us uh, out here for. Uh, you know, being paid, like they never can tell you who else is being paid. They never can tell you how they're getting paid. I, and that's why I always ask. I'll ask you straight up, like, hey, like if you know so and so is getting paid, just DM me. You don't even have to make it public. Let's say you're trying to keep a secret. You don't even have to make it public. Just DM me. Say, hey, this is so and so get paid. This is the person you need to contact, right? So, um, again, if you're uh, Moderna, if you're part of the Moderna crew, um, and you want to start paying physicians, um, you know, my DMs are definitely open. Um, let's see. Oh, that's a good question, right? So the question is, uh, won't your body make antibodies fight against COVID without uh, taking the jab? So the answer is yes. Yes, your body will definitely uh, make antibodies um, if you have an infection because that's what your body does. Um, but what the issue is, is that one, you have to get the infection, right? So you have to succumb to get the infection. And if you just do a search for long COVID, um, it's not that like jackpot that like, oh, I just got COVID. I'm down the street next day. Like, it's not that jackpot approach. So a lot of people um, will have that mindset like, oh, I'll just get COVID. Like, I'll just get COVID. I'll just deal with COVID and I'm good to go. Usually if usually they reference like, oh, the mortality rate being one to two percent. One, like, why would you even like take that risk of being in the one to two percent? And two, um, when they talk about the 98% who don't die from COVID, right? There's a good percentage of people who get disabled from COVID. There's a good percentage of people who actually get disabled from COVID. So why would I even take the risk? Why would I even take the risk of even dealing with it if I don't have to, right? So that's usually the issue. So yes, your body will definitely make antibodies, but the problem is it'll make antibodies, but we already know that those antibodies not gonna last long. Right again, it used to be six months to about a year. Now it's down to about thirty to sixty days. Right, so that's that's usually the, um, you know the, the issue at hand uh, when it comes to just the the, the COVID um, body doing because we you know we don't want to. I I just always tell people don't I, let's not take the risk. Uh, let's see. Uh, Oh, so question. So why get the shot uh, with various? Oh, this is good. So why get the shot with uh, various viruses? Because there's still protection. So even if there are variants around, it's not to say that the new variants that are around isn't going to necessarily protect yourself against uh, that the the one that the booster will protect yourself. Because like again, we have this new variant. What we call it a B one point one six. Um, we know that it's coming, but if you got the COVID booster right now, you're still protecting yourself from a lot of the variants that are circulating as we speak. Like that new variant only makes up less than 10%, which means 90% of cases are due to um, some of those variants that our boosters have. So that's why we still recommend getting vaccinated and more importantly, getting boosted uh, to protect yourself and have that wide range of protection. Now, again, when we fast forward and we have this pan vaccine, we'll be telling you, hey, go get the pan vaccine. Uh, but I, I still think I still think Moderna and Pfizer and them are still going to be around kind of doing their thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, it's, oh, I mean, this is probably the most. And this is really the most important thing. Right? We definitely when when if, if we were riding ourselves and we remember when people were saying, hey, um, you know, uh, what, what was it? Seventy percent. Like they were they kept mentioning herd immunity. Seventy percent. Seventy percent. The reason why is because we knew if we could have squashed it early. Um, we wouldn't have to deal with the subsequent variants that we have to deal with at the rate. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have variants because 
the way viruses stay alive is because they make a variance and how they make variance by reproducing in people who aren't protected. So I'm not saying that it wouldn't have made variants. I'm just saying that you would have definitely slowed down the rate that it made said variants. So that's why we were trying to get so many people vaccinated in the initial onslaught to not have to deal with wave after wave after wave, which is kind of what um, we're, we're dealing now. Um, but yeah, this is, and again, when you, when you tell people, when you tell people, especially those who are really against the vaccine, um, that's a concept they don't understand. They don't understand that the reason why we want so many people vaccinated is to try to slow that wave down. And now if you look at it, right, if you look at it, especially, you know, parts of this country, um, you know, states in this country, a lot of people are around that 65, I think this country is about like 68% to 70%. So we're at that 70%. It just, unfortunately, it took us three years to get there. Right. And because it took us three years to get there again, you still have these variants. And again, that, and that's just the United States. Remember, we don't have a fence around the United States. Um, so, yes, we may be close to we may be close to, you know, 70 percent here in the United States. But there are other parts in the world that that is not the case. And because that's not the case there, when a variant pops up over there, guess what? And we y'all know we travel. Y'all know we outside. It comes over here and then we have to kind of deal with it. Okay. I mean, asked me to check him out. Uh, even about apples, including us. Oh yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. Oh yeah. This, I mean, this is a good part. Drives to surgery. Have no time to do this. A resident asked me to check check him out. Yeah, yeah, no. It's like I said. When, I think it's kind of in reference to our, our our NP issue, right? We got, you know, like I said, we got some. Right. It's it's not all. It's not all. You know, it's not all dandies. Right. Especially in our field. Right. Again, I try. Oh, I take that. I don't. I don't try to avoid talking to them, like talking about our colleagues. But sometimes you gotta talk about our colleagues because sometimes they be wild too. And I'd be like, "What are y'all doing?" Like, like you'll have especially, especially our colleagues who are like very opposed to, um, you know, uh, the NPs, the PAs, and you know, and those professions. Like they had opportunities to, you know, build up the physician base. They had opportunities uh, to secure and make sure physicians were in political power, but they didn't do it. They sat back, made all their money, right? And now they're upset that, you know, part of making their money, right, means that, you know, these other uh, places got to flourish. <laughs> and, and this is important too, right? Especially in, and this is so key, like, because you have a lot of people, you have a lot of people who are being taken care of by nurse practitioners, by physicians, even though they go to a doctor's office, um, they have nurse practitioners, they have physician assistants kind of under them kind of doing uh, the work. So you have physicians who have kind of turned into this more of a managerial type role and kind of a, a, an overseer of, you know, the, the workers kind of working under them, which again, I got a problem with um, in that regard, especially, uh, especially if you do a good job training and training them up. So, and this is, this is right. I think this, and this is probably the biggest issue that I have uh, with uh, the nurse practitioner training in particular is that that it, it's a very especially for those who are nurse practitioners um you know that it's a very and verse may not know uh, it's very inconsistent in their level of training meaning that like for me to become an internist i had to go through um you know obviously undergrad i had to go through medical school then i had to go through three years of residency i had to do all of these board exams um, and even during residency there was government bodies that said hey your rotation has to do this 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 and this 
and the nurse practitioner level of training, you may have a nurse practitioner, just because I know, um, who like, all right, they, I just need to get this, I'll, I'll go around with this family physician for a month, and I'll go around with this other OB physician for another month, and I'll go, so like, the, it's it's not, and again, it's not their fault, they're just kind of, the way their system is set up now, that it's not very streamlined. So there isn't a nurse practitioner residency for those who want to do outpatient medicine, or a nurse practitioner residency for those who want to do, uh, you know, surgery or everything else like it's it's very like all right hey you need to have one month for ob one month for this and a lot of times the schools are saying hey you need to go find these rotations and again so the the level of teaching um is inconsistent so and again as long as they pass their and boards it's just like okay uh, so that, i think that's the biggest issue i have especially a lot of my colleagues have is that uh, that training is different like for a pa pa training is way more uh rigid uh like pa school and then i think they have i think their exam is called the pants exam which is funny um uh to become certified in a physician assistant um whereas the mps uh some for some places it could be the wild wild west i'm in florida and for those who may not know uh florida um uh, just recently had controversy with these schools um, with the fake diplomas and everything else and for those who know and heard me talk that would happen in Florida because that's that's a very Florida thing uh, to do. But some of those nurse practitioners who got the fake diplomas ended up becoming NPs, right? So, and again, that's what happens when you don't necessarily have the uh, kind of checks and balances that uh, you do. Uh, but again, like I said, we still we still shout out to um, shout out to our, our NPs. We love them. Um, can internist be a primary care provider? Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, a lot of internal uh, turnus. Um, who, you know, after they finish residency and they kind of, there's like a two track for them. Um, they either go into kind of acute hospitalist related medicine or they go into ambulatory outpatient medicine and there are a lot of providers. Because typically when we think about primary care provider, it's either a family medicine physician, a pediatrician, or the internist. And then they kind of serve as the de facto, you know, pers person of ease. Oh, Millie's like, I'm just blocking them. I love it. <laughs> Uh, oh, this is a good question. So the difference between family medicine and internal medicine. So I, I love saying this because I, I talk about this all the time. So as an internist, uh, part of my training, more importantly, what my training did not include. Like when you're a family medicine physician, uh, not only do you have to do three, you get three years of training. Um, yeah, usually three years of training, uh, but you have a focus on internal medicine, which is, I mean, adult medicine, which is, you know, 18 above, but you also have a focus on kids, right? Because you're a family medicine physician. So you got it from babies all the way to the elderly. That's your bread and butter. That's why like, I commend my family physicians because I think they are wild because you got to know about the whole spectrum versus me, I got off easy, I'm an internal medicine physician. So I only have to focus on 18 and till they die, right? Like that's what I focus on. Um, now, in some of the training, especially for internal medicine physician during our residency, a lot of it is more hospital focused, more hospital based uh, versus the family physician. They tend to do a lot more rotations on the ambulatory setting. Um, but that's that's usually uh, the big difference. Um, but Shout out to the FPs because I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. Uh, yep, over here to answer that question about the 
country to say COVID is no longer concerned. Ooh, oh, this is a, you see, this, this, this is a good question, right? Shout, shout out to everyone. I think everyone's family. I appreciate you. Um, what do we need to do as a country to say COVID is no longer concerned? So when we say, so one, we have to define what do we mean by no longer concern? Um, is COVID ever going to cause government shutdown? Nope. Is government ever, is COVID ever going to cause us uh, to have to universally wear masks and those things? Nope. Right. So for a lot of people, we are already at the point of COVID is no longer a concern. The way I think about it is like the flu. The flu is something that I'm I've I stay concerned about. But the majority of the public don't really sweat the flu like I sweat the flu. Like if, if again, if you see me past three, if you, if you Google me past 2020, I got a lot of videos like this saying people go get your flu shot. So I've always been the, the the shot pusher, I guess. Like, and again, the people who make flu shot don't pay me either, right? But I've always been that. So there's a public sentiment when we talk about no longer. So I think it's really about the definition. Like when you say COVID is no longer a concern, um, you're not going to see a worldwide shutdown. You're not going to see lock lockdowns, um, social distance, man. You're not going to see none of that stuff no more. So we are already over that significant wave. Why is that the case? Because we have vaccines now. Um, we have multiple vaccines now. Uh, we have multiple different companies making vaccines. Uh, we have outpatient treatment options, even though some of these variants are making those kind of <laughs> kind of look a little weak. Um, we have a better structure, hopefully, uh, to deal with any influx of COVID because that, that was a big issue too. Not only that we couldn't deal with COVID because we didn't know what COVID was, but the hospital settings literally could not deal with the influx of the influx of cases. Like there was a point in my um, hospital that uh, we shut down the surgeries, right? So you were having no surgeries. And in the areas that you had surgeries, we had to move uh, patients down there. Like we had whole floors dedicated to COVID. Like, like it just overran us. So I think we have more and more, you might have to uh, uh, re um, uh, pin that again because I missed it. Um, so we, we had more and more um, of a an emergency because we could not handle it. So if you say, hey, doc, uh, you know, is, is, um, is COVID no longer a concern from the general public? No, I don't think it's a concern, um, especially here in the United States. Now, of course, there's individuals, there are group people who are still being affected, uh, people who still need to be protected by themselves. Um, and you're going to have to move around those, but I think you still kind of have to move around those when you were dealing with the flu. It's just that we didn't give the flu uh, the credence that, that, we, that we've given uh, COVID. Um, so I, I hope that answers your question because it's a very good question because uh, it's a question we've been getting past for the past couple of years. Like, when, when is this over? And I don't think it's ever going to be over. I think it's going to be here to stay. Um, it's just going to be like from a public sentiment and an individual sentiment, like what, what are we going to do about it? Um, but yeah, definitely a very good question. Uh, yeah, no, no, I definitely, I definitely recommend, um, you know, getting an MPH degree. I like I said, I just, I just, it just, it, it will definitely make you think of medicine and just health in general. Um, and I got, you know, I got, I got a lot of people who went and got the MPH degree and they're epidemiologists and they're, I mean, they're looking at numbers and they're just, I mean, they do some amazing things uh, with just a public health degree. Um, I got a master's, when I got my master's thesis, um, it was in program evaluation. So it's one of the reasons why I can go to, I can go pretty much anywhere and like be able to assess like how people are doing things and tell them that they're doing it um, not great. Um, 
yeah, clean air. Oh, and oh, great. This is a great, uh, great point. Clean air, mass etiquette, especially in crowded areas, because um, COVID will always be around. That, and that's the thing too. I think we have to. Um, and this, uh, so I, 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 I think, I, I think, I, I think you pinned this, but I'll just repin it again, because uh, COVID is always going to be here, uh, uh, because of that. And and again, it's just, and obviously, it's a mindset thing. Because like I said, a lot of y'all are going to be like, oh my God, I remember before COVID, I used to be able to do this, and after COVID. I do this, right? After COVID, I hesitate to do this. After COVID, I hesitate to do that. Like a lot of people are gonna, like that is really gonna be a mindset shift for a lot of people that's really never gonna go back. It's really never gonna go back um, uh, in, in that case there. Uh, oh, any uh, any advice uh, for high school junior planning on going to the school for pre-med? Oh yes. So one, um, especially because pre-med is such a very you know broad term. Um, so typically pre-med typically has a lot of science related courses in it. One, make sure you like science, make sure you like math because you're going to get a lot of it. But more importantly, especially when you talk about going from high school and even going to undergrad, uh, making sure you're getting into a specialty that you, uh, especially a degree program that you actually like doing, that you'll actually enjoy. Because again, yes, there'll be some prerequisite courses that you'll need to apply for medical school. But if you really want to do, let's say, anthropology, if you really love anthropology, you're going to have a much better time going through your anthropology degree and then every now and then taking your your, your required courses for medical school than going into like a pre-med program and, um, you know, hating biology. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a bio major because all the same courses I need for bio major, I can go to uh, for med school. So I would say one, do something you love doing, especially when we're talking about the undergrad stuff. But when you're in that uh, high school realm, obviously have fun, volunteer, right? You know, especially if you have the opportunity, because I know that everybody has the opportunity. If you have the opportunity to be able to volunteer in certain places, volunteer with doctors, doctors' offices, hospitals, uh, EMTs. I know that's a usually a easier one to volunteer with, like the fire, fire, fire department, just so you can kind of get. You know, your hands, not, you, you, you won't, your hands won't get dirty, but just so you can kind of see like, okay, let me see what, what's happening on this medical field. Because you want to kind of see, especially when, when you say, I want to go be pre-med, you're essentially saying, hey, about 10 years of my life, like I'm going to just dedicate to this. It ain't going to even be about working. I'm going to be just dedicating to uh, the pursuit to get to right here, right? And you, get, you just got to be okay with like, hey, I'm about to lose 10 years of my life studying um, in residency, in school, all this, like, let me make sure I like what the other side looks like. So definitely your, your junior, your senior, um, year, um, going in and diving into, or just getting sneak peeks of, you know, some of the stuff that you may want to go into, um, is extremely important. Uh, the, but I think kids should still wear masks at school. I think what happens with, like, if, uh, now are these kids vaccinated, not vaccinated, right? Like, that's probably gonna be the number question, right? Um, if your kids are vaccinated, um, yeah, rock, rock out. Like, I, I think um, I think we know that the protection is there if you provide the protection. If your kids aren't vaccinated um, and you don't, they don't wear a mask, they just, that's just a risk they have to take. But again, the same risk that they'd have to take if they were going and you didn't wear a mask and they have the flu, right? Because the flu was still there, right? Colds is still there. Anyone who have kids know that these kids touch everything, right? You know, kids, kids, kids don't have... That, that mental, like, like oh, let me not touch that. Like, kids touch everything. They get sick. Uh, everyone's sick. Their friends are sick. They still hugging. And they, they want to hug you, especially when they get sick. Uh, so it's just a matter. I don't, I think from a masking standpoint, um, 
one, if you have a kid who's compliant, right, to wear the mask, okay, and they like it, because a lot of kids like, my kids like wearing masks, like, we got to tell them, all right, you don't got to wear a mask for that, so my kids like, because they got so used to, because, you know, we got the Disney mask, and Batman, and Superman, and Spider, we got all these, like, so for them, it's a status symbol to them, and that's what we have to think, a lot of times, from an adult perspective, like, we think, like, oh, man, they, 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 they you know, they're frustrated, they can't see, no, nah, these kids be having fun, wear a mask right so like if you make it fun for them then rock but if they don't want to do it like if they hate doing it they ain't gonna do it anyways like it's just like and i'm always on like all right how can i make my patient as compliant as possible if i know they hate wearing masks i gotta do other things to try to protect them uh because they won't wear the mask even if i give it to them so that, that you know that's a uh, oh my <laughs> uh, this uh someone in washington state who's refusing tb treatment and now running from the cops yeah yeah, no, this, like, yeah, and I, 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 and I don't, because obviously TB hasn't been a thing for, like, four decades or something, right? Right, like, as far as, like, a big thing, because uh, I'm, I'm in South Florida, so we had, like, a TB center, like, a facility that all the TB people went to, right? That's, like, 70s, 80s type stuff. Um, so, again, yeah, like, like if, if we treated COVID, those, especially those who don't get vaccinated, if we, like, let's say you pop positive, right? You pop positive. And again, the scenario, you pop positive for COVID um, and your doctor says, hey, you're positive for COVID. You need to come get treatment. And you're like, nah, doc, I'm okay. Like, oh, you're, you're okay. And then I just, I, I hang up the phone. I call the CDC. Hey, you know, Barry over here say he's not going to get treated for this COVID. And then the CDC says, oh, okay, we'll take care of that. They call the local police department. They go to your job or they find you here. They find you there and say, hey, you need to come with us. If you don't want to get um, vaccinated for COVID, you need to be um, in this barracks, right? Again, I'm just, I'm, I'm hyperbolizing it. You need to be in this barracks for 10 days, right? Like if, if we were doing that, like that'd be a whole nother decent in and of itself. But yeah, people don't realize uh, the TB don't play. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And COVID, yeah, this is, this, I, I know I mentioned this before, but COVID um, causes way more issues than, uh, uh, than the vaccine, right? And it's and we've shown that over and over and over again. Um, but somehow they only want to, they only want to just just focus on like what the vaccine does. Especially when um, you know, I think it was with Pfizer and that concern for incidence of myocarditis. So then now they're like, oh my God, see the myocarditis. I tell you, even though the rate of myocarditis in the general public was the same as the rate of myocarditis in patients who got the COVID uh, vaccine, right? Never that that was never put together. But you know they, you know the, the folks ran with it. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. So why do uh, so why do all doctors clown ER physicians? So uh, I don't think they do. I think what you'll see, because um, I'm a hospitalist, right? So I work directly because usually if the ER doctor needs to admit someone, guess who they call? They call the hospitalist. Um, it's a very love hate relationship. Like imagine. Right. If you had a specialty that every time they called you, they were giving you work. Like every time they called you, they were giving you work. So when that ER physician calls that orthopedic surgeon, hey, I got a broken hip. Come fix it. Hey, um, I got a brain bleed. Come fix it. Hey, I got a patient who needs to be admitted. Come fix it. Hey, I got this woman who pregnant. Like so imagine the specialty that whenever you hear from them, they're giving you some work to do. And your goal is to say, man, I don't think I need to do that work. Like that's the ER uh, specialty in a nutshell. But they're amazing physicians. Uh, but like that's, that's some of the disdain um, that you hear. Because again, just like the internist, 
knows a lot about a lot. The ER physician knows a lot about a lot in the the emergency setting, and they have to be able to kind of stabilize so they can call that orthopedic surgeon, that neurosurgeon, that thoracic surgeon, that general surgeon. Hey, you got this gallbladder needs to be taken out. Hey, you need this person. Like, so that's, that's the angst um, that you typically get uh, in the ER physician uh, standpoint is because every time they call, they're giving us work to do. <laughs> oh, Miss oh, oh, Bernice is here. Shout out Miss Bernice. Miss Bernice is one of my, uh, we, we've been rocking together for, uh, I think about a year now, Miss Bernice, she doesn't like the vaccine. Um, she's my, 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 she doesn't, she doesn't like, and she doesn't like when I call her anti-vax, but she kind of follows a lot of stuff the anti-vax folks do. <laughs> Shout out to Miss Bernice. Uh, it's like, oh, this is, oh, this is funny. Um, who do I dislike uh, the most? Surgeons, cardiologists, or ER physicians? So again, I think this kind of plays, you know, plays factor to it. If I was forced to choose a specialty uh, to rank the least, if I was forced to, like they twisted my hand, it would be the ER physicians. Because again, anytime you hear from the ER physician, it's, hey man, this patient here got to be admitted. And of course, I'm on the other side, does this patient really need to be admitted? Like, can't you just do something to send that patient home? Because again, and remember, if I'm a, especially when I was a resident, anytime you heard the ER physician, hey, I got this admission. Hey, I got this admission. Hey, I got this admission. So like, like reflexively in your mind, almost like PTSD, anytime you hear from the ER physicians, you know that, oh, they're about to give me so much more work to do. And I didn't really want to do that work. So that's typically, if I had a rink, shout out to me, ER physician, but I love y'all. But like, if I had a rink, if they said, if they, if they twisted my hand, if the hand was twisted and I had to choose one, um, yeah, like, eat, like get about it. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, make sure we don't miss any. Oh, this is a very good, this is actually a very good question here. So this is uh, thoughts on weight loss surgery. So what, you know, the times have changed so much uh, in regards to um, weight loss, obesity, and everything else. Um, there was a time, let's say, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, where, like, it was almost, like, taboo to even discuss, like, oh, having surgery to, to lose weight, right? When we talk about bariatric-related procedures, um, lap bands, you know, gastrectomies, like, it was, like, shunned. But then, right, because what we typically, especially in the medicine standpoint, we started looking at the numbers, right? We started doing the studies and saying that, hey, you know what? And again, you know, the people with money, the insurance companies, they're like, hey, you know what? It would actually be much cheaper for us just to get the surgery. Because if we give them the surgery, now guess what? Their diabetes is better controlled. Their hypertension is better controlled. All these things are better controlled, which means they cost less on our system, which means they cost less to us. So like, we were spending all of this money just trying to tell them to exercise and eat better when we could have just sent them straight to go get the surgery and that would have saved us so much money in the long run. So um, you definitely see this kind of pendulum uh, switch uh, when it comes to kind of weight loss surgery and where it's ranked as far as recommendations. Before it used to be like, try this, try this, try this, try this. Okay, you can think about weight loss surgery. But I think as the surgeons got better at doing the weight loss surgery and their complications um, you know, decreased, and you know just the results were just fantastic then you start seeing it kind of rise to the top as far as uh surgery is concerned uh oh all right we got about oh we got about one more minute so we got about let me see if i can get one more question on here 
uh, before I get up out of here. No, I, pr I appreciate these questions though. Um, let's see, let's see here. Oh, this, you know, let, me, let me talk. So this is a good race. So someone said fly, FM is almost interchangeable with IM now unless you live in a flyover state these days. The reason why I would separate that is like I said, you do not want me to take care of anyone below 18. I get stage fright. Like I used to take care of patients, outpatient medicine. They'd be like, "Oh, can you see my kid?" I'm like, "How's your kid?" Like 16. I'm like, "Oh no, I, I don't. I don't know what 16 year olds do." Right? Like we, as an internist, we literally do not see a person under 18. Right? And our women's health was one rotation, one rotation. Whereas family medicine, much more. So I'm, when I tell you, like it's it's definitely a, a stark. It's definitely a a difference over there. And again, that's why I commend my FPs. Uh, my family medicine folks, because I know I couldn't do it. <laughs> let's see, let's see. Uh, oh, and so we'll, we'll take this last one, and then we'll definitely, we'll definitely have to hop on uh, tomorrow for another series. Now, this episode we will definitely, because I, I usually only post one of my episodes to YouTube. I'll post this one, uh, but we'll definitely hop on tomorrow because y'all had a lot of great questions. How do you feel about pain management? Extremely, extremely, extremely valuable. Um, I think historically, a lot of people don't realize. Um, what our system, um, healthcare, right? Because healthcare, remember, yeah, yeah I'm, um, you know, I'm black, right? So, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with healthcare system, right? Because of just how the history of medicine has transpired, and you know, racism and everything else. But right, when it comes to pain issues, there was a time where I could open up shop and charge everyone two hundred bucks cash. And then they go around the corner and they pick up, you know, 100 pills of Percocet, Oxycodone, whatever. And it wasn't until they noticed that, all right, you know what? The medicine field is making a lot of drug addicts that they shut all of that down almost overnight. And this happened, let me see, I'm, uh, let me see, in Florida, this happened between 2000 and eight to 2011 somewhere around that time frame i know because i was out in rotations and what happened almost immediately is that we had so many uh you know drug withdrawal people get admitted so many uh drug overdose people get admitted because now the medication that medicine had been feeding them um you know to feed their craze for financial reasons they couldn't get to no more so either they had to either score some percocet somewhere else or score that next level opioid, which is heroin, um, from somewhere else, right? So, like, you had a lot of drug overdoses, a lot of drug withdrawals, um, all because of medicine. To the point now, when you fast forward to year 2023, you have patients who will not take a opioid medication for fear that, oh, I don't, I don't want to get addicted. So you have a patient who break a leg and be like, no, nah, I don't want to get addicted. I'm like, I'm like, sir, you just broke your leg. Like, I promise you, I'm not going to make you get addicted. So we have unfortunately ingrained um, in our patients, one, that pain is bad, that pain is taboo. To manage your pain um, is something that you have to kind of kind of whisper, because if you say it out loud, like people don't want to deal with you. And then again, you have so many disease processes. Um, I think the most... Uh, the more common one I always think about, especially in my culture, is sickle cell disease, right? So you have patients who are in uh, over pain, and then you have professionals, like healthcare professionals, who are like, ah, you're not in that much pain. You're a seeker. You're a this, you're a that. So then they under-medicate them, under-treat them for fear of being one of the doctors who put a person on a career path uh, to be 
you know, a dependent on pain medication. So um, it's, it's, and that's why I, I love the fact that you have specialties now that specifically focus just on pain management because it's, it's so extremely, extremely important, right? So again, that's the last question, right? Man, I love y'all guys. Um, thank you for coming out to a, another episode. Again, this was, this was our Real Physician Reacts, but we just did a kind of a free open series and y'all had a lot of great questions.